0: In the back of my mind, Christian life was a treadmill. We just slowly turned the treadmill up. Crisis is not our enemy. In fact, nothing good happens without crisis. We see people living in a kind of way that we would like to follow, charting a kind of route. I guess I'd gone from worshipping the waves that God made to worshipping the God who made the waves, and surely
1: that's got to be so much more inspiring. Hey
0: guys, welcome to the Anson's podcast. It is Tuesday morning. And this week, Sam is not here. In fact, he might be not here again uh, because he is working on something that involves elk and a white truck. And that's that's about as much as I'm at liberty to say. (laughs) But the good news is, is that here in our mobile recording studio,
1: Luke has generously offered to jump in. Thanks for coming back on. Pleasure to be here. It's kind of weird. I listen to this podcast just about every morning and to be on it. It's going to actually ruin one of my morning runs because I won't have a podcast to listen to.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry for that. Maybe we can come up with some way of making your voice sound like it's not you. That's easy to do. <laughs> but this conversation is actually picking up about a month, six weeks
1: after yeah. the events in question. Yes. It feels like several years, but it's been just a month and a half.
0: Where we're going to go is we did a podcast on triathlon a while ago and the body and Sam and I's pet obsession with workout regimes and, you know, the overall metabolic processes of the body. And it is very helpful. Yeah, it's helpful. And, and it's one story where you actually jump into the very end of, you know, a couple guys who have learned to like to run, swim, and bike, and do other things. But we just know that very few stories actually start there. Ours mm-hmm. doesn't start there. And we touched on, but not did not have time to actually dive into kind of the body as a site of restoration, the body, mm. Dallas Willard has the brilliant line, our bodies are the focal point of our existence. Uh, anything in the sacramental realities of occupying a life in a body and what that means. Mm -hmm. However, Luke's story (laughs) and some of the recent content in Luke's life speaks into that in a really cool way. So Luke, how would you put a brief history of
1: your physical activity? A brief history of my physical activity is similar to the gospel and starting off with Desolation and oh, uh, f- fragility. Oh, no. <laughs> but I then I know, I know it doesn't start well, and then growing into into a kind of restoration of the body and validating the necessary growth and a certain health. So just
0: take me to the devastation.
1: Yeah. So the devastation, I mean, started in middle school as all. Devastation does for most people. Um, with, yeah, being a little overweight boy who would come in from recess smelling so bad the teacher had to tell him not to play during recess, which is just devastating that for did, a young buddy That did here. Not happen. <laughs> that did happen. No, that that did happen. Um, and then moving into the exploration of sports, which, was immediately hit and stopped by physical ailments. So at first it was Osgood slaughters in my knees, which I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. No one actually ever corrected me. Osgood Schlauters. Osgood What does that feel like? I don't know what that is. So that is the muscles on your knees separating from the bone. So oh, it's, what? It's literally the slow tearing of muscle. Off of the bone. Off of the bone. So I had to wear knee braces and this again is in middle school, so your dual knee
0: bracing. Were you playing you played football at the end of elementary school, but in middle school, what sport were you playing? Oh my
1: gosh, I I forgot about football. I started playing football until I slipped a disc from my spine and couldn't play that anymore. And then moved to lacrosse oh, in I just middle gotta school. jump in and go <laughs>
0: because it's gonna sound absurd. But the sheer volume of injuries. I mean, I remember that slipped disc, mm-hmm. and you at like eight years old, having to go to intense physical therapy. Who what? Age, to be able to like walk upright. Yeah. And but you know, didn't didn't get you down. You Ooh. picked up
1: lacrosse in middle school. Picked up lacrosse in middle school, which I enjoyed so much, um, and that's when the auschwitz slaughters kicked in, and so I couldn't actually run at all. Um, And so lacrosse had to stop when I entered into high school. But in high school is when I discovered my love for martial arts, which you and Sam kind of proceeded before me and then kind of initiated me into, and I found a physical activity that I was pretty good at, which culminated in... Wait, hang
0: on. Because I got to jump in. This is just such an interesting point in the story of it's fascinating to me from a a maturity standpoint that, you know, mobility and coordination is a side effect of playing most sports. Mm. And, you know, Sam and I were done with organized sports by the time we were in high school and had have store the typical storied and sad relationship with those mm-hmm. with like brief bright flashes, but the thing that changed in karate was they the foundation is to teach coordination dexterity skill and you were great. I remember we were in a karate yeah. class one year together uh, before I
1: uh, aged out. Yeah body is the emphasis rather than the body is performing a task. The task is the mastery over the body. And I remember that that was the first circumstance in which I discovered any sort of skill in the possession of my own body. Because coming out of middle school as an overweight kid, I honestly loathed my body. I saw it as an enemy, mainly because, you know, my best friend was dating the girl I was in love with for five years, and it was because he was a handsome dude. And so I clearly had a antagonist, and it was my own body. Um, and so transitioning into a context in which the develop of the development of the body is no longer the enemy but the goal was amazing. And I, it could have been that you and Sam aged out and I had more time in it. But for me, it also felt like the first time I was better than you at something. You were great at karate. I was really good at it. I was really good at it, naturally talented at it. And so that was very validating. Also with two older brothers, it must be said that, you know, if you push
0: Sam, he like turns it into a game. If you push me, I punch you. But if like anyone pushes you, you like, drop into your like you get your horror low <laughs> and you like punch back in a way that says if you keep going this is going to be a fight this is going to be a game this is a battle this is a and battle. i'm ready for that so you need to be ready if you keep going
1: and ironically i'm also good at that because i was the younger brother and so kind of had a natural upbringing in a martial context very true to say no more martial law context <laughs> yeah, very much so Yeah, so that was an excellent four years, but it culminated in a dislocated shoulder. Can you tell that story? Because when did you dislocate your shoulder? I dislocated my shoulder during my black belt test. So a black belt test often consists of multiple parts. And one of these parts... Uh, was to test your undomitable spirit. It's tamashi? Tamashi. That's probably a mispronunciation of that Terrible word. Horrible mispronunciation, but that's what it is. Undomitable spirit. So you're demonstrating your unwillingness to give up in the face of something very difficult. So basically what it was, was sparring every student in the class in succession. So it was 32 sparring matches with fresh partners, Culminating in two-on-ones and three-on-ones, me being the one because I was being tested. And finally, sparring the two different instructors of the class, which were very large men, very good at what they do. And so in this context, at the very end of this hour-long sparring initiate...
0: It's very common to throw up multiple times during Where if you don't? It's And I just, I'm trying to think of anything that you know, compares people who do fight sport will just say that there's nothing like the whole body engaging of throwing down with a person and you're, you are trying to stay loose and conserve energy, but it is, I mean, by minute 10, mm-hmm. you're exhausted, but then they, they try to take you to the place where it's like, what, what happens to this person? When they have nothing in the tank and they are streaked with sweat, will they keep going?
1: And mm-hmm. So you're at the very end. Very end of this. And my shoulder dislocates. 90% of the time, a dislocated shoulder goes up or to the side. And this can be replaced, put back into socket by a person with limited training that knows how to move the arm my shoulder went down and then back up which is really rare and locks the joint with its own tension Um, and so that required a hospital visit and five burly nurses using two sheets as leverage to get my arm back into its socket. Did they Did they drug you that time? I was very out. I was as out as out gets. Speaking of things that are as out as out gets, your shoulder didn't exactly stay in. No, so this dislocated injury created a succession of other dislocations. So the following dislocations, and luckily they were all doing very manly things, and so I get to tell good stories of manly activities. So the first is black belt test. Second was... Climbing a 14er in Colorado with my dad doing belay and I was moving out of a belay position and my muscles were tight because of the inherent stress of being on exposed rock faces and that dislocated. Uh, My dad was able to get that back in. And then the third time, Blaine and I were lifting weights at our local YMCA. But I just have to like throw in of emphasizing
0: like do you see audience and are you seeing in your own story the specificity of the attack because it's it's sports Mm -hmm. and then it's the sport you're good at and then it's wilderness and then you and I were living in a house with two goats and six chickens in Washington Mm -hmm. and I really love free weight training and it was It was like an invitation into a kind of like masculine world. of Right. It was our (laughs) very first time doing it. Very first time just because we were going to, you know, train for some race or something. Yeah. And it was, hey, come, come learn like your basic bench press back squat. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, Luke
1: gets under the bar of the back squat, lifts it. And my shoulder slips out like a wet sock. You yeah it like you it looks like it just goes limp
0: yeah. like one side of Luke's body just kind of and it, amazingly Luke replaces the bar gets it back <laughs> I did. but then you know that yeah. that
1: sucked yeah that was awful and then proceeded um, you know another hospital experience that was traumatizing however I eventually did get surgery because basically I just had a hole in my joint. And so I got the whole stitched up and after a year of intensive physical therapy could perform normal activities without thinking about my shoulder.
0: That's insane. Yeah. So during this period, can you put words to what is, what's the message that
1: you're having to grapple with around your body? Total ineptitude and a certain sort of confinement that my body is... A sort of enabling prison. I mean, I can do other things. Like, I could still walk, and it was just an arm. However, it did limit the things I liked to, and that I loved. Like, I had to stop doing martial arts for five years. I couldn't do martial arts, which I loved. And as we said, it was something that I discovered, love of the body. And then I couldn't cycle or rock climb, which I loved. Um, so it was a sort of captivity of keeping me from doing the things that I loved, which was my experience of my body growing up Is this goalkeeper to my desires, something that I had to get past rather than something that I used to get to what I desire. Yes. Yeah, and so it didn't stop at the shoulder. Then it was that back injury that happened when I was eight with in football then transitioned into um, I was getting married Um, We had the joke of marriage bod, where you had to get fit for your wedding because your wife was going to see you in all your glory. And that, of course, created an immense amount of anxiety, as it does for many of my friends. So I know this is true. And so I began training for my wedding, which is a funny thing to train for, um, and started running. And after three days of running, I couldn't move because my back was seizing. I, I was lying on the floor in my bedroom trying to reach a computer to send an email because I couldn't move, um, which then translated up into the present of fighting this 15-year-old back injury and trying to pursue any sort of physical activity. Man, it's
0: just so insane. Although I do remember a funny story around the wedding bod and one (laughs) buddy that I lived with before his wedding. It was like early in the morning. So he was lying in bed so tired, but he's just kind of moaning aloud to anyone who will listen. I can't stay in bed. Yeah. I got to get up. I got to get strong. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Dude, you're exhausted because you've been like staying in a relationship with this woman so your effort's in the right place, man. Mm-hmm.
1: Like, <laughs> it's like The pressure is there. The pressure is strong. It is. Yeah, again, starting in middle school, I'm sure. I think this is what the podcast is actually about. It's middle school. <laughs> oh, man. That would take more time than we have
0: today. <laughs> so, something happens where mm-hmm. you go from these crazy back spasms to, because in the, you know, in the middle of there, there had been these like uh, kind of out of the blue achievements, you did Mount Baker in a mm-hmm. whiteout in really bad conditions. Yeah. So all of a sudden, we're seeing pictures of Luke mountaineering, and you had there had been other things um, mm-hmm. where almost like the the light was coming in and mm. how the story could go. But I think kind of a, a surprising turn
1: was. Just six weeks ago. Yeah, so in a desire to pursue physical activities and to embody my body, I did physical therapy for my back and I went to a chiropractor for my back for several months to get to a place where um, the back spasms weren't keeping me from doing things anymore. And that was primarily in running. I could still hike. And that's partly where the Baker thing came in, but that was before I started training for the wedding. So achieving that sort of realignment of my spine. And then honestly, the knowledge from your and Sam's training for triathlons allowed me to start running again. So learning about posture and form, um, Breathing, going down from how your shoulder blades sit to where your chest is, to how you're holding your head, to where your feet are falling, completely changed my ability to run or not. And I think that has made me a a very strong advocate for the power of form. Because when the stakes are debilitating pain or running at all, and form is the thing that's getting me between those two points, I think it works. It impresses... Upon a person,
0: how precarious perfect running form is, where it's described as balance. But like any great balancing act, the boundaries of form are very narrow. Mm -hmm. And you kind of realize that how when you are poised in the right position and move well, things are going well. But things like fatigue... And even self-doubt and discouragement. Mm. All these things can just in a, like, in an instant compromise your posture right. a little bit. And next thing you know, running because of something that's actively destroying your body.
1: Right. And I think I have the benefit of immediate repercussion. Most people think about form as avoiding long-term injury or long-term damage. Mine's kind of a moment by moment. If my form slips... I am in pain because the injury is already there. And so I kind of have a benefit of a very clear indicator if I'm in it or not. I mean, you run like a guy in a commercial. You look incredible, (laughs) but almost too incredible. Which is why I run only in the dark because it's winter and I have to go before work. So I have a headlamp on. And so people not seeing you is just a benefit. Yeah, it is. No, I'm doing the world a favor. <laughs> they can stand to learn a thing or two. So pursuing running on a regular basis came out of a desire. I remember I was sitting on a, on a couch, which is a good place to sit when you have these sort of epiphanies, realizing that I had no physical movement in my life whatsoever I started a new job that was primarily sitting at a desk for eight and a half hours a day. And then I came home and the things that provided restoration to my soul, like reading and spending time with my wife, also consisted of sitting and I realized I had no movement at all in my life and had this pressing desire to implement movement. And what that looked like was digging out my running shoes from my closet, stealing workout a gear from Padre. I hope you're not listening to this one, Padre. No, I'm not giving them back. Um, and then going out for 20 minutes. And it's all I do is every other day is 20 minutes in the dark running. And it's slow, but it incorporated movement into my life and taught my body that what it does matters because it became has become rhythm.
0: That's beautiful. How the heck do you get from going, I run 20 minutes, and that's what I have in my schedule to I'm gonna backpack marathon distance in
1: solo. <laughs> yeah, so I've always loved backpacking. I tried to do a solo backpacking trip when I was in high school. It was like two miles. Uh and I went and I was so bored and so scared. I was sure there were just herds of bloodthirsty elk, kind of like the horses in the Herculean tasks that for some reason want to kill you. Or the one the ones on the night of Macbeth's regicide. Yes, exactly. I was convinced those were in the woods, and so I bailed early. I could only do one night in there. So I had that experience of solo backpacking.
0: A person's first time solo backpacking could also just be titled, whoops, I ate all the food. Because
1: that's all you have to do. You just kind of sit
0: around looking at your
1: snack bag. You do. So after spending this time incorporating rhythm of movement, I felt this desire to test my body. So I had been experiencing, I remember... After three weeks of doing this, I looked at Blaine and I said, I have been running for three weeks in a row. That is a miracle. Because of all of these series of injuries, I could not get any sort of momentum, any sort of longevity on any sort of physical activity without an injury coming up and stopping that. So even the fact that I had continued to do an activity for three weeks was a miracle to me, was a victory. Even that. That's huge. And so experiencing this new terrain, I wanted to test my body. And I had a weekend coming up by myself. And I knew that left alone, I would do some damage to my apartment and so figured I needed to have something to get me out of the house and something to do. And so I was thinking, okay, solo backpacking trip. I'll do a couple miles. I'll spend some time in the woods, have time with God, write, read, have a restorative experience of beauty. And then asking Blaine, okay, what are the spots in our backyard to go backpacking? What's close? He sent me the Lost Creek Wilderness Loop, which is just shy of 28 miles and i looked at this loop it's just shy of 28 miles depending on where you park is kind of the thing
0: yeah (laughs) so it's over 28 miles if you can't figure out that there's a secret parking lot (laughs) (laughs)
1: because there's a campground and there's another parking lot at the end of the campground which cuts off this whole loop. yeah but if you have to do the fire road it's different (laughs) it's totally different and with elevation gains and losses in the thousands as you do i think four different mountain passes because you're kind of hopping back and forth over this set of um, Rocky Mountains. Um, And so I saw this loop and there was just this rising desire in me to just try and do it all rather than do two miles, which was my idea to try and do the 27.78 miles in two days because I had a weekend. And when I landed on... I'm going to try to do this. I felt anticipation and joy of this idea of, I'm going to go to the woods and I'm going to test myself there and see what I am capable of. Because my life is entirely untested. It really is. Most of what my life requires of me is just showing up and then everything else is momentum. And so to actively pursue something that requires something of me Continually gave me a lot of anticipation for that to experience that. Um, so, in preparation for this, I've got all my gear out on the floor. I've got my meals planned out by the hour. Um, I've got my map planned out by the mile because pacing there is key. And it's not like I've it's not like I'm a marathoner. It's not like I am a marathon backpacker. I run for twenty minutes in the morning. You know. And so I know that this had to have some strategy because I was not going to rely on the abundance of my own body, to quote P.H. Fairchild, uh, my favorite poet. And so it had a lot of planning to it. And while I'm planning, I'm texting Padre, and he's like, oh, this is pretty ambitious. Like, what's your bailout plan? I was like, I don't want a bailout plan. That's not the point. But I did have a bailout plan. There's a lot of campsites, and I was like, okay, I'll just go as far as I can see where I'm going to stop. Driving out in the morning in the dark, putting on my gear in the parking lot below freezing temperatures because it's late October, starting off on this trail, immediately start having back pain, thinking to myself, I've made a terrible mistake. I'm going to get a mile into this thing. I'm going to have a back. My back is going to seize and I'm going to be stuck in the woods. Um, so needing to fight through that. And then my next thought was, this is gonna take me 12 hours. I'm gonna be setting up camp in the dark. I'm gonna get eaten by a mountain lion. I'm by myself in the woods. And so the first couple hours, I didn't really feel tired. My entire struggle was internal. It was an internal battle of, I'm an idiot for trying to do this. I'm gonna get hurt. Um, something's going to go wrong, I'm by myself, this is too far, everyone knows that this is too far for me, this is not going to go well. And it wasn't until I stopped for lunch and I checked my phone and I realized that I had done half the first day's hiking in a quarter of the time that I thought I was going to do it that I had any sort of hope that I was going to do it at all.
0: That's such a sigh moment. I mean, it's, it is true that the first, I'm going to make up a percentage here, 25% of any undertaking, but especially these physical tests where it just, it looks like it's just a backpacking trip, mm-hmm. but actually what's on the line is what your life is going to look like in the body that is yours and how you're going to be able to uh, interact with that. I mean, the stakes are so high here. Right. It's, you know, people who do races know that, you know, in the beginning, before you enter, like, the actual effort, because the work is in front of you, Mm -hmm. but it's getting through the initial, at the end of a soccer game, you know, and everyone makes, like, a tunnel for the kids to run through. Mm -hmm. It's like a, it's a version of that, only it is sibilant voices of the kingdom of darkness and your own past all line up. Unfortunately, they ha- they're limited in number, but you don't know how quite long the tunnel is that you're going to go through and just hear like, how long is this going to take? Right. Did I make a huge mistake? Do I want to be out here all day? Like, right. The alternatives that start popping up of like, I could just do a couple miles and then I could run into town and find some comfort at a coffee
1: shop and read books instead. And books are reviving and renewing and good things. So almost the fears weren't, can I start this? The fears were, once I do start it, can I handle it? Which I feel like is a much more prevalent type of fear in my life than simply not starting at all.
0: Larry Crabb's book used to be called The Silence of Adam. Now I think it's called Men of Valor. But he he does point out something that, oh my gosh, guys listening, that is the fear. The fear is actually not what happens once you're past the point of no return, but the fear is, okay, in front of me is the darkness, and when I step in, no playbook, no escape plan... There's not like a series of steps to work through. Mm -hmm. Like everything in our life is an antidote to this. Even when you get in a car, the environment is so uh, moderated that it's like, well, you do this and then this and then this. There are steps by which you constantly measure yourself. Mm -hmm. How completely unlike anything in real life. Like (laughs) a conversation with a girl you're interested in. Yeah. A conversation with your boss when you're actually bringing up that it's time for you to have a different position or leave the company right like actually all of the things that relate to our destiny in the world are always going to be totally uncertain and the fear is when i get in there am i going to be swamped when i when i am totally committed what happens next and there's just that amazing thing mm-hmm. of what's actually required
1: of us is the willingness to step in anyway. Right. And I think that is why I had this great sense of anticipation in doing it in my body because it needs to start in the body because it's through our bodies affect our lives, rather our lives affecting our bodies. And it kind of felt lower stakes, honestly, attempting something difficult rather than like the conversation, which is so much more ambiguous. And then having a feeling of this is testing, I want to prove that when I get in there, I can still handle things so that I can have that testing and know what I'm made of. Yes. And with that knowledge, be able to move into other arenas that are as, if not more, filled with debilitating fear.
0: Yeah, I just want to pause for a second because what you just said was so significant our bodies affect our lives rather than our lives affecting our bodies. Because I'm aware, you know, when I tell people about, you know, areas I'm testing myself, how the ones that are easiest to talk about are the physical. But it is true that you learn things in the physical that, if you are willing to, will actually translate to the immaterial, to the relational. but. It's so interesting because I think that I had for a long time just kind of the assumption that I would be living in a particular way, knowing like that it's kind of necessarily true that my body will adapt to whatever my lifestyle is, that I'll live, and then there will be consequences of that for my body and whatever, whatever. But it is so much more accurate to go, hang on, we're towing the line here of like the reason that God became incarnate why we're not all Gnostics for swearing the life of the body to go like, uh, no. As we said at the beginning, the body's the focal point of our lives. And Jesus lived a richly physical life. And the spiritual disciplines originate in disciplines that you do in your body, mm. which have an effect for your soul because your body is affecting your soul all the time, right? Your soul isn't necessarily like doing the opposite, as you just said. But if you have this lifelong message of my body is a limitation and I hate my body, it doesn't stay there because that impacts uh, your understanding of your voice, my sense of worth and identity, your ability to uh, participate in friendships Mm -hmm. as a person with
1: initiative. It's like, it's a big deal. It's a big deal that I don't like to think about because there's the pressures to be fit. Like I don't want to approach sports or triathlons because the pressure there feels cultural rather than a desire for integrated wellness. And so I don't want to touch it. It feels like it has too many values sacrificed on this altar of image and image has become the replacement for the body, which makes it so much more difficult for me to approach as someone that has experienced wounds about my physicality and my body.
0: Oh, Luke, it's so good. The body has been Mm co-opted. And what it's been turned into is perform here. It's everything about you. Mm -hmm. And if possible, look like a Ken doll. Right. Yeah, uh, and if not, stay home. Right. But there's like what we're talking about is very different. Of like, no, we're talking about meaningful engagement. Um, doing doing the hard work that is living as an incarnate person. Mm-hmm. And I don't go out to do triathlon to win races. That's a very small story. Right. And speed is a very small story. But I actually go out. Because it provides a rhythm of intentional engagement that affects the rest of my time. Your trip, which the whole story is so just visually beautiful, mm-hmm. not even just narratively beautiful. Like, wow, what a cool that I've never done that loop. Like, yeah, it's gorgeous. That's crazy. It's a super remote, weird spot in the state of Colorado. Wild, but it was. It was the. It was stepping into darkness, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like. You know, now every weekend Luke does twenty-six mile backpacking loops because then all of a sudden it's like you've you've just missed the point. Yeah,
1: it takes that it takes it out of the real and takes us back to that hyper real place that we're trying to avoid. Yes. So what are your last miles like on this undertaking? On this undertaking, the last miles were excruciatingly painful. I had eaten all my food, so I had planned everything out mile by mile, hour by hour. And so I got to the last several miles and the last hour and a half, having eaten the last piece of food that I was carrying with me, having almost finished all of my water and my water purifier broke my first morning, my only morning. And so I was almost out of water. And I knew that I was getting close, but my body was just beginning to shut down as it had gone way beyond what I thought it was its physical limits and was starting to reach its actual physical limits. And so I kind of began to walk like I imagine cowboys walk after they've ridden a horse for five days. I was, had a bit of a cradle and a waddle and had to speak aloud to myself. 26 miles, one mile to go. 26 miles, one mile to go. You've done 26 miles. You can do one more. Literally speaking that, aloud to myself for a half an hour as I came to the conclusion of this loop because my body had gone beyond the comfortable, to say the least. And something that Blaine talks a lot about is the pain cave, at least to talked to me about. I'm sure he got it from somewhere. Um, but the idea of... Suffering is a fuel. So in training, you need to be in the pain cave. You need to spend time in the pain cave so that when you're in those circumstances, you can reconvince your brain that your body can handle it. And so when I talk about my runs in the morning, I say I don't run. I just spend, I start my day in the pain cave. So it was entering into the depths of the pain cave and relying on this new founded Experience of expecting more of my body than my body has communicated what I can expect of it.
0: I just want to know what agreements did you have to break or were you then able to break uh, to be able to be stepping into the things you're stepping into with your body given the story you have?
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes those agreements can feel really simple and kind of dumb. Um, But that doesn't make them any less potent. I think one of those agreements was, I'm fragile. I mean, the message of those injuries were, try it and you're going to break physically. Um, And so the sense of just fragility, and therefore lacking any ability to weather adversity of any kind, especially the physical. And so needing to break that agreement, and then the agreement simply of like, I can't do this. Like, my life has proven to me that I can't do this. Like, that's not an agreement. That's a fact. Like, here's the evidence. What are you talking about agreement-wise? And then the ability to break that and then step into an undertaking that 18-year-old Luke would never consider a possibility. Honestly... Luke, the day before, wouldn't consider it And possible. for the first
0: six miles. <laughs> and for,
1: <laughs> and for, mo- <laughs> for the first day.
0: <laughs> I can just imagine because, you know, when I've, I never have a chance to talk with young guys, we're part of a community, our Anson's community, that includes like dozens of football players. <laughs> but if so, I haven't met them yet. What, like, right. I, but I have met a lot of guys who are like, when it actually comes to the life in their body, women seem to talk a lot more about issues of of their incarnateness. But I know that for guys, like, I feel scrawny, or I feel big, or I feel mm-hmm. slow, or I have, like, you know, a weirdly far apart chest. Like mm-hmm. um, I've got big nipples. It's no shame in that. There? I feel it, though. <laughs> <laughs> and just to go... Well, wow, because the agreements are already there, like the, the accusation is already there. What does that person need to know, speaking out of your story right now, to begin shifting to a place where they can actually like see that, no, they were given a very precise
1: body for the story they're in. and mm-hmm. Where it started for me and where I think it needs to start for a lot of people is recognizing what story you're being told, what story you're being force-fed, and that is probably going to indicate what is being assaulted against your body. Like, for me, recognizing that full stop of injuries, you know, and then recognizing, okay, what that is trying to assault is my willingness to initiate. Um... And then so therefore being able to recognize that as assault rather than reality. As far as thoughts about the body, I don't know. That's so good. I think
0: the biggest deal, seriously, the takeaway from the value of an example is like, hey, actually, no, our every achievement doesn't have to be physical. Not every guy needs to love backpacking. But every guy is incarnate, and every guy in his incarnateness reveals something of the triune God. Right. And there we are being told a story. And whether it has a lot of victory or a lot of failure, we live in a world with an enemy who's trying to win the right uh, to interpret that story to us. Mm -hmm. And there's always this invitation to see what the interpretation has been to renounce it and then actually to ask, like, Jesus, where are you leading me into some major risk? Mm
1: -hmm. Because,
0: like, if you didn't have your walk with God, I would have gone, you're out of your mind to go do this 27 miles. Mm -hmm. Like, go do a 13-mile loop and you'll have a great time. Yeah. But actually knowing that you're able to sit down with your wife and go, my heart is responding to this. I feel something in me, like, testifying to the reality that this is my next proving ground. Exactly. And then you ran it by Jesus and listened and heard yes, at which point it was just
1: like, I'm doing okay. this. Yeah, I'm doing this. To answer your earlier question about where to start and trying to redeem our relationships with our body, I think for me it started with renouncing. I was, curse- I was cursing my body. I hated my body because of middle school shame, and because of injury. And I hated my body, and in so doing, was cursing it. And in cursing it, I was giving the enemy permission and a sense of ownership over my body, which is exactly what the enemy wanted, and continued that cycle. And so I think the first step was renouncing the hatred over my own body, and instead of cursing blessing, even before... I had proven anything, even before I tested myself, even before I had received wellness through um, physical therapy and going to the chiropractor. It began with blessing rather than cursing, which I think is really prevalent in our culture.
0: Man, that is such a game-changing piece of advice that our episode for today ends right there with actually... Uh, the reality that we are either blessing or cursing uh, our bodies and the things in our world. We're basically not ambivalent about anything. Mm -hmm. But the first place of stepping into the darkness we've been describing of what's going to happen if I go in there is to start engaging the, I'm going to take possession of this story with Jesus, bring it Mm -hmm. under him and bless and then see where he's going to take it. Thanks for listening to the podcast today, guys. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we hope that you might send this along to someone in your world. I'm not asking for a five-star rating or a review. Rather, that if something about this podcast struck you, that you might pass this off to somebody that you think would really enjoy it. Looking for more? Good news. There is a new issue of Anson's Magazine. If you're listening to this after October 10th, if it's before October 10th, you can just wait And there's always the chance we might be late Sometimes we send you guys over to social media to keep up with us But so little really happens on social media now That's kind of a moot point point. And make sure you keep your eyes peeled for our films rolling out in the fall See you guys next week